Friends and lovers, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris. I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Hello. And Craig Eastman. I pre-ordered a Cybertruck. <laughs> I'm delighted to say that today's episode is sponsored by the Rand Corporation and the Reverse Vampires. As we take a look <laughs> at some... <laughs> as we delve into the murky world of conspiracies. Now, you could argue this is a fairly broad topic. We've covered a, a, a number of conspiracy-related themes over the course of our history in this uh, podcast. Things like the conversation, the Manchurian can it, they live, all the president's men, spy came in from the cold, and well, I suppose most spy films just by very their very nature, and uh, Vision of the Body Snatchers, various born films, but there's plenty more where that came from, and we're going to take a look at six of, well, maybe not all the best, but six of them, and let's see where we get to with that. We've, we've uh, covered a lot of them previously, Scott, but nobody believed us, man. Yes. <laughs> Uh, shall we start off today by looking at one of the, well, the earliest one on this list is a foreign correspondent. Uh, Drew, would you like to give us a bit of a lowdown on that one? Yes. It's August 1939 and the storm clouds are gathering over Europe. Joel McRae's Johnny Jones, a New York crime reporter with a knack for getting in trouble, is rebranded by his boss as Huntley Haverstock and sent to London to report on the terrible crimes being perpetrated against poor, defenceless accents. <laughs> While investigating multiple US citizens assaulting Dutch and German, he becomes involved with some individuals whose own concern is the hopefully not quite inevitable coming war. Amongst these are Herbert Marshall Stephen Fisher and his daughter Carol Lorraine Day, leading members of the Universal Peace Party, and Dutch diplomat Van Meer, Albert Basserman, witness to a crucial secret clause in a defence pact between the Netherlands and Belgium. This MacGuffin clause is of key importance and will affect German invasion strategy. So, naturally, they'll do a lot in order to get it. This lot includes assassination, and our Johnny sees Van Meer gunned down right in front of him before a peace summit in Amsterdam. Chasing the gunman through the Dutch countryside, he eventually discovers that dead Van Meer is, in fact, fake Van Meer. Though, still, dead. Uh, and real Van... Scant and, consolation to Van Meer. <laughs> and real Van Meer is being held hostage in order to extract the MacGuffin. Naturally, though, by the time Johnny gets the police around to the windmill where he found the old man, there's nothing to see. After a failed attempt on his own life in a hotel, he meets up again with Carol, and the two of them fall in love and decide to marry as they head back to the UK. And, well, why shouldn't they? They've been in each other's company for 93, <laughs> maybe even as much as 97 minutes in total at this point. Back in London, the non-reporting reporter trips on the story yet again, and with his wonderfully relatable attitude of dead or alive, a story's a story, <laughs> starts to track down Van Meer and the plotters behind his abduction. He may also even if by accident, save an old man's life and stop a war. Spoilers for 1939, he doesn't <laughs> stop a war. <laughs> but at least he can try to bring one of the masterminds to justice, though a plane crash may get in the way of that. Foreign correspondent has a lot of problems, some of which are simply products of its time, like Joel McRae giving puppy dog eyes to Carol at her speech, and offence to all watching now, the tone-deaf, silent film-esque increased-speed comedy section during the car chase, and the villain's perceived redemption at the film's conclusion, which would surely not have flown had it been released in 1945 rather than 1940. And, of course, the all-pervasive bloody underscoring. Perhaps its biggest failing is that the film's subtext is so on the surface that it's more or less, well, text. (laughs) 
a propaganda film to encourage interest in the war from the US public and perhaps even begin to implant the idea of US intervention. The film's finale, with the rousing speech on the radio and the star-spangled banner playing over the end title, is, to this viewer in space year 2019 at least, and in line with previous viewings, corny at best and objectionable at worst. But it must be pointed out that the USA of today is not the perceived USA of the 1940s, and the target audience is American. For all that, it is a Hitchcock film, with much of the skill and intrigue you'd rightly expect from that name, and it's a compelling and entertaining thriller. Elements of other Hitchcock works from both before and after are evident here, from The Man Who Knew Too Much in the 39 Steps to North by Northwest, and it rattles along at a great pace. A few scenes stand out visually too, particularly the assassin disappearing through a sea of umbrellas in the pouring rain. There's a likeable central performance from McCray, despite his character's shortcomings, and his bantering with George Sanders' insouciant fellow reporter Scott Folliot is considerably better light relief than an old man failing to cross the street as the police chase a murderer. Lorraine Day is watchable enough as the hoodwinked member of the obviously-not-what-it-seems-universal-peace party, but her role is relatively weak and hampered by the unnecessary and unbelievable romance subplot, which is itself emblematic of the sort of failings that stop this being top-notch Hitchcock. Again, though, it is still Hitchcock, and therefore very much worth watching. Either I was neither compelled nor entertained. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, there is, as you suggest, a sort of minimum standard of competence you get from a Hitchcock film, and a minimum level of quality, but this probably is that minimum level of quality. <laughs> it didn't, didn't really do an awful lot for me. I didn't hate it or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I, uh, it says here that Joel McRae is an actor whose career spanned almost five decades and over 100 films. My question to that would be, how? <laughs> He's very, very bad. Didn't like him as a lead actor at all. And uh, yeah, as you, you've, you've mentioned, the, the romance subplot is literally laughable. I, I thought yes. that it was going for a comedy at that point. There's, a, there, there's an unfortunate sequence in that place uh, just when it's just sort of around that point where th- that kind of romance starts by him making the most ridiculous goo goo eyes at him and her getting all flustered and it's just been an absolute laughable comedy moment for all the wrong reasons and yeah. then it going into these weird little chase sequences like the, like the the bit with the old man crossing the road which I think a little bit further up the road there's two guys carrying a pane of glass um, <laughs> it, it was yeah. just ridiculous and uh, it's, it's farcical it's so out of keeping with the rest of the film and what it's about. Yeah, um, and you've you've mentioned the the number of films that he did later on, which kind of take similar ish tropes and setups and um, plots, um, like North by Northwest is the obvious one, which is you know just leagues better than this. Oh yes, um, oh, yes. So there is. He's done a very similar film better a number of times since then, and I can't really imagine there's a lot of joy in going back and seeing this one as a priority. As if you're Hitchcock completist, you know, but it's, it's not bad. I didn't hate it, but it's certainly one of his least interesting and enjoyable films that I've seen. It's, it's still being Hitchcock, it gives it a certain level that it's, always going to, it's never going to go below, but uh, yeah, I can't really recommend people make this the top of their list. I hadn't realised this was a Hitchcock film until you said just now, Drew. Uh, I had not seen it previously. I still have not seen it now, and so it would be somewhat disingenuous for me to offer an opinion. Are you going to do it anyway? <laughs> no. On this occasion, no. <laughs> that rarest of moments when I keep my mouth shut. 28th November 2019, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Market and calendars. A date that will go down in infamy. 
Are we? Uh, oh, are we jumping thirty-four years ahead now? Ooh, why not? Why, why not? Be? Indeed, we're getting into the good stuff. I think now, at least. Well, I would say so. But yeah, so, so um, you're going to tell us about the parallax view? I certainly am. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, only you can be the judge of that, Scott. (laughs) The 70s really were an interesting time for America. Coming off the back of several high-profile political assassinations and into its golden period, Hollywood made the most of the fertile conspiratorial groundwork laid by the political landscape of the 60s and offered us a plethora of entertainment centred on shady corporations, shadowy assassins and general paranoia about the state of the world. Three Days of the Condor, The Conversation, Marathon Man, All the President's Men, the list goes on. 1974's The Parallax View is one of the higher profile entries in the subgenre. While it might not be considered quite as classic as some of those others I mentioned, it is a really, really good movie that I first took to heart a long time ago and I haven't let go of since. Warren Beatty is Joseph Frady, a third-tier newspaper reporter, considered an irresponsible pain in the ass by his editor and assorted peers, and to be honest, they're not wrong. Frady is present during the assassination of a US senator atop the Seattle Space Needle, an act soon consigned to the history books as the act of a deranged lone gunman. It is only three years later when immediate witnesses to the event, including one of Frady's former romantic attachments, are revealed to be dying in alarming numbers, that our anti-hero starts taking things seriously and digs further into his former lover's claims of a conspiracy. The trail eventually leads Freddy to the wonderfully nebulously named Parallax Corporation, who operate at a global level as trainers and brokers for the services of assassins, recruited from among the ranks of society's ostracised and loners. As he uncovers more about their operations and observes further assassinations, Freddy infiltrates Parallax via their recruitment programme, quickly finding himself in way over his head and past the point of no return. Can he reveal the truth about the corporation before they discover the nature of Freddy's true identity? Ooh, you'll just have to wait and see. (laughs) There isn't an argument I would make for the Parallax View as a perfect movie. There are points where it appears to chicken out and panders to studio norms, a really unnecessary car chase being an obvious example, and some really creaky decisions around the edges. Can't afford to blow up a plane on the runway? Try taking a frame of airport and jiggling it about a bit. (laughs) What it does do really well, however, and this is something that I yearn dearly for a return to, is that it adheres to mostly forgotten 70s mentalities of placing some trust in an audience's intelligence by showing and not telling. The plot is somewhat necessarily convoluted in places, but there are no characters who speak primarily an exposition dump. Each character has a purpose, each fits neatly in place, leaving us to figure out how the cogs are affecting the overall mechanism as the hands tick round for 100 minutes. The supporting cast are, it goes without saying, uniformly fantastic in that effortless 70s way, but Beatty's performance among all this is just so brilliantly understated and detached to the point of nihilism, which ultimately it needs to be in order to explain how a person could find themselves in such a position as Freddy does in the final moments of the film. It's a steep buy-in, particularly if a viewer were expecting a sympathetic hero to channel their interest, but a brilliant payoff that doesn't settle for justice and a neat resolution. I would also highlight that 70s Beatty is one of those rare examples where I totally understand why women were throwing themselves at a guy's feet, because he is hot as in this movie. (laughs) I continue to lobby for a Men With Beautiful Hair episode of the podcast that revolves around this performance from Beatty and Kurt Russell in Tango and Cash. (laughs) Back to the matter in hand, however. Pacula's direction is pleasantly restrained, with lingering takes and wide shots that are happy to park themselves while the story unfolds, punctuated by occasional bold jump cuts to the unexpected, which help to reinforce a sense of paranoia and an entity operating at a level beyond the obvious. 
It also contains moments of genius, such as the Salmon Tail Dam sequence, whose apocalyptic siren sound first freaked me the f*** out 25 years ago, and still does the same today. You might have noticed I have really rose-tinted glasses when it comes to movies from the 70s, but listen, I'm happy to lend them to you for a couple of hours. The parallax view is my jam, and I like to spread it thick. (laughs) I freaking love this film. Yeah, so I'm going to disappoint you, Craig, because I don't. That's all right. This is uh, the second time I've seen this. And Contrarian. Like, Disinformation alert, guys. <laughs> it's meh. I, I find it just so dreary. I, I mean, I, there's parts of the film I like, certainly, and I, I really like the ending, even though how we get to the ending makes not a lick of sense. Because <laughs> it relies pretty much entirely on luck. Because like, up to that point, you've got like the character's been directed to do things, mm. and then that last final bit of like, how he gets to that stadium... Mm-hmm. Or the arena is just luck, and it's like eh, no, you kind of ruined that there. But my biggest one is you're talking about Warren Beatty being kind of laid back to the point of nihilism. That's what for me it's more like laid back to the point of why did he even bother turning up? He's rubbish. <gasps> I think but his hair terrible in this. His hair's so dreamy. Can I'm not certain, but I think this may be the only Warren Beatty film I've ever seen. Um, you know, I was thinking the same. I've not really seen an awful lot of Warren Beatty at all. I like, don't I'm think not, I've seen another Warren Beatty film. I'm not tempted to check anything else out on the strength <laughs> of this. The the other point should be to yes, creepy sound at the dam, uh, but then that whole sequence I can never get because they spent like three and a half hours on a really interesting car chase across some dirt roads in a police car which I've not seen 800,000 times in 1970s films in particular The car chase thing is super disappointing because it just doesn't need to be there Yeah, it's so true, and it's got that really annoying bit, and actually in my notes for another film I've mentioned this in particular, these car chases from the 70s but it has that really dreary thing to it, it's, it's always a, those rubbishy 1970s police cars, mm. it's always on the same types of roads and there's always that um, thing they must do of showing you a slow motion shot of it jumping over a um, a thing a, a small ramp yeah and pretty much anything will do two or three different angles of the same jump it's it's funny it, the, the reason I hate that so much is that that actual shot of of basically some sort of souped up Chevy going off just some sort of minimalist ramp just to get three feet of air or something like that is it's in this movie you know it's purely in this movie so that they could take a publicity still of it and put it in a cinema (laughs) lobby somewhere promoting the film so you'd look at it and go this film's got a cool car jumping off a thing in it and it's got (laughs) nothing to do with the film whatsoever it's the one bit of this film that I don't like it's such a pedestrian chase as well Mm. yeah there are bits in here that I'd like to like more than I do and I probably enjoyed it more in this viewing than my first one which was only last year or the year before I think but it's, I just kind of find it boring and it, Warren Beatty's so laid back that he's on a plane with a bomb in it and he appears that he isn't the first <laughs> even vaguely that he's on a plane with a bomb and is about to die well, but that's What's the, the least thing, effective I, way I can communicate the, this bomb yeah. threat to anyone yeah but then he's like he's sitting there watching waiting for this woman to pick up this, this napkin that he's written the bomb threat on it and he's like he's kind of like you're going to just pick up rather than sweating because he's about to die. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love most about it is that he's only just come off, forcibly come off a boat because it got blown up. <laughs> and he's thought, that, I know what I'll do next. I've tried getting blown up on a boat, man. I've always wanted to get blown up on a plane. Um, I, lo- I, I absolutely love it. I also love the fact what cracks me up about always cracks me up about this film was that notion that essentially in the US back then planes were just 
buses with wings. Yeah. You could literally get on a plane and pay for it when you got on. Yeah. <laughs> that absolutely blows my mind. <laughs> I can't fathom how all those hijackings happened. <laughs> it took me a while to realise that's what was happening there. It's yeah. just such an alien concept. Like, well, well, yes. Why is he playing? Is he buying a drink? No, the no, air stewardess's ticket, conductor. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> It did subvert yeah, my expectations. I've never seen anything like that before. It's so weird. Yes. It's subverting my expectations a little bit by being a fake um, airline that didn't actually blow up, kind of on camera. So just mm. had to, just couldn't afford to actually do it on camera. So I suppose it still, still blew up. Didn't quite subvert my expectations enough. It also goes that one wee bit too far because the idea of them like recruiting like the disenchanted people, Craig, mm. and using the those questionnaires and stuff. That actually, that seems quite feasible. And then they go full Lipkiss file for a bit. Eh, yeah. It's just unnecessary. Um, I suppose I'm somewhere between you guys on it. I, I liked it okay. Um, I probably liked it more than Alan Packless' uh, other films in as much as I can remember anything of Clute. I think I actually like Clute quite a bit. But I've I'm, never I'm, seen Clute. I'm, I'm kind of freaked out about going back to it because obviously everyone thinks that All the President's Men is his best film and I didn't really care for that very much. So um, I probably actually like this a bit more than All the President's Men. It's a bit less dull. Um, but it does still have quite a long stretch of dull parts in it. But uh, it's almost worth it for the ending. I guess kind of in line with Drew, there's a lot of, lots of things here that I wish I'd liked more and the bits that I do like are kind of far enough apart that it's kind of a struggle to maintain interest levels in it all the way through. I guess I give it a mild recommendation. Um, there's some bold choices in terms of the way that the uh, conspiracy goes and also in the way that the uh, Parallax Corporation are brainwashing people and uh, that uh, that little brainwashing montage went on for quite a bit longer than I was imagining that it was. I'm not <laughs> sure what the story of that is. It's, it's in there purely to be that moment where you're sitting watching it and someone sticks their head into the, 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 the room and goes, what are you watching? <laughs> Yes, uh, oh, Clockwork dear. Orange. It is not. And yes, it's it's okay. I can't. I'm afraid to get all that excited about it. But I'm glad you like it. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you're <laughs> glad for me. Yeah. It's more than Drew managed. <laughs> can't you just be happy for me, Drew? <laughs> no. Oh. Weird question. Oh. <laughs> That's fine. I get it. Shall we crash onwards then, Drew? Do you have any more luck with Capricorn One? We'll see whether maybe things are reversed. Yeah, I have a feeling they may be. But, uh, <laughs> our selection of conspiracy theory films covers either directly or obliquely the two most popular and talked about conspiracies in the English-speaking world. And this film, Capricorn One, involves one of them. Imagine, if you will, that the Apollo missions had successfully landed humans on the moon. Well, because they did. But look, I'm trying very hard to get into the spirit of things here, Okay. <laughs> Uh, and that ambitious space exploration has continued, with NASA preparing to send astronauts to Mars. Add to that picture, though, a fickle public for whom the engineering miracle that is spaceflight is now considered quotidian, and a president terrified of scandal and failure in a post-Watergate world. It's into this setting that Peter Hyam's Capricorn Worm takes us, as a built-by-the-lowest-bidder life support system is discovered to not actually be able to support life. Bit of a flaw in the plan there. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you had one job. Yeah, the thing is, it's completely in keeping with what you might expect. <laughs> oh dear, it's shockingly believable. Yeah, however, this vital information isn't given to the astronauts. Charles Brubaker, James Brolin, 
Peter Willis, Sam Waterston, and to John Walker, a wife-beating murderer, uh, until they are yanked in secret from the rocket, mere moments before lunch. Still, better to find out then rather than halfway to Mars. The rocket launches anyway, which is a bit weird. Well, it turns out that the failure of Earth's president wants the mission to seem a success, so the astronauts are sequestered in an abandoned military installation, replete with a full-size replica landing craft, and the soundstage set up to pass as the surface of the Red Planet. But what if the astronaut's morals cause him to raise objections? My morals cause me to decline to partake in the charade, is the objection raised by Brubaker, to which Mission Chief James Kelleway's ready response is, Well, then we'll explode the bomb that's on the plane your families are currently all on. Oh, and by the way, I'm totally being compelled to do this by forces outside my control, and I'm clearly not an integral and willing part of this evil scheme, honest. (laughs) Not being left with a lot of choice, the earthbound crew sit in a shed for two-thirds of a year until called upon to land on Mars for the cameras. Then a good bit more thumb-twiddling until the Capricorn spacecraft returns to Earth and they're sneaked into the recovery capsule while nobody is watching. Well, that's the plan. And while it seems that nothing could go wrong with this entirely well-considered and foolproof conspiracy, something goes very wrong with this entirely well-considered and foolproof conspiracy. And the failure in the spacecraft sees it explode in re-entry. Shocker, Rooney. The astronauts grok pretty quickly what has happened and that they are now a liability and make an escape, commandeering a plane and getting about 20 minutes away into the Texan desert before running out of fuel. (laughs) Remember, this was a time when you could get on a plane and pay for it in your seat. (laughs) What is left for them is a race. Reach publicity and save themselves, or be killed by the government to preserve the secret. While all of this is going on, TV reporter Robert Caulfield, Elliot Gould, begins to investigate the announced deaths of the astronauts his suspicions already aroused by the bizarre disappearance of his NASA employee friend and the fact that someone tampered with his car in an effort to kill him. His efforts will lead him to be the astronaut's crucial and only ally. I'd never seen Capricorn 1 before and had really been quite looking forward to watching it, having wanted to see it for a while now. I'm glad to say I was not disappointed, as Hayam's film is a hell of a lot of fun and while it's not unfair to describe it as a polished B-movie, is entirely undeserving of the apparent scorn it received in many quarters on its release. Its premise is no less daft than that of the dreary parallax view, and its climactic helicopter chase scene is several orders of magnitude more entertaining than the 1970s ubiquitous and almost always boring police car variant. Perhaps the biggest problem is with the astronauts. James Brolin fares best, though his straight-laced hero may be believable but is hardly interesting, and his colleagues are barely characters at all. Around them, though, things are much better, with Hal Holbrook all too believable as the scheming Dr. Kelloway, and Elliot Gould great as the reporter, playing it with just enough of a wink to stop it becoming too earnest. And is Telly Savalas as a crotchety, crop-dusting <laughs> pilot stunt casting? Absolutely. And do I care? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since I saw Capricorn 1. I saw it quite early on in, I guess, in my film watching career. It must have shown up on BBC Two or something like that at some point, and I was quite taken aback by it because it's. Uh, I thought I was very impressed with it as a young kid. Um, through modern lenses, I'm maybe a bit less impressed with it, but I still enjoyed it watching it again. 
I think it is one of those films that, in my memory, has kind of compressed down to the, the half hour of really good bits and mm. sort of evaded <laughs> out kind of some of the, the duller stretches that's in there. Um, but uh, I generally agree with everything you say there, Drew. Um, lots of things, things to like. Um, I like Elliot Gould's arc. Um, there's lots of nice touches throughout it. Uh, there's some very strange touches. There's some bits that look awful. Um, it's part, <laughs> part of that um, when they're being chased through the desert, which is a sequence that goes on for far too long as well, but I don't understand why it's there. But um, I do like when they have two black helicopters chasing him and they lose him at one point, so the helicopters <laughs> stop next to each other and turn round to look at each other so they're shrugging their shoulders and then fly off. <laughs> <laughs> they needed to dub in a... Where? Where? Absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be shake up and down the rotors. Yeah. Yes, as you say, um, B movie rific on a number of levels, but it's it's an enjoyable B movie. Uh, movie. Uh, I think it stands up to the test of time reasonably well, and yes, uh, quite enjoyable. And it's just nice little uh, undemanding uh, film to watch. Yeah, yes. I think it's a good yarn. It is. It is. I mean, in keeping with much of Peter Hyams' output, it is essentially a, a, an elevated B-movie, but there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, and it is. It's a really good, really competent movie. I think I only got around to it. It was a couple of years ago now. Mm. Uh, it was It was a huge blind spot uh, for me, and I did. I really, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those films I made the mistake of trying to watch late at night, and I fell asleep <laughs> on first viewing, but like, I was really happy to go back and uh, watch uh, a catch-up on it the, the, the following night. And watching it actually... I think probably, I don't watch it directly in advance of this podcast, but I actually, as it happens, watched it about three months ago, so I didn't really feel the need to watch it again. But it is, it's a really good film. There's a, there's an argument to be made for this probably being Hyam's best film. Um, you don't think which, it's end of days? Oh, no, Time Cop's pretty strong. So. No one talks about Pete Hyams all that much, but he's he's done some decent stuff, man. He's he's mm. He's done some good movies, and even where he has dabbled in, like, Low end B movie stuff like The Relic, that was an entertaining enough movie. Um, I was thinking like 2010. 2010's like, like all a lot more than 2001, anyway. 2010's all. Yeah, uh, I've got a huge soft spot for Outland. Um, Outland, Outland <laughs> is another comfort film for me. Outland is brilliant. And actually, yeah. believe it or not, I mean, Time Cop aside, his output with Van Damme, Sudden Death is actually a pretty good <laughs> yes. film. And uh, certainly one of the high points of Van Damme's uh, career. The Presidio, not bad at all. Um, he's not done some bad stuff, but th- this is, um, this is probably, a, I think, for me, comfortably his best and most accomplished film. Yeah. Um, and I did, yeah, I, I do. I really enjoy it. I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy it as much as some other stuff in the genre. And I think I'd built up in my mind some expectation around the, the, you know, the, the reputation that it had already. So I was maybe slightly disappointed in that sense. But it's still a lot better than some other stuff we'll be talking about tonight. So yeah, I would say, yeah, if you haven't seen it, I, mean, I would, I would not want to dissuade anyone from watching this. It's a really good film. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a ripping yarn. It's a, a good fun film. And, you can maybe stand to have at least 50 or 20 minutes at least just trimmed out just to tighten things up a bit because it does get a wee bit saggy mm. in places, but it's it's just a fun film. It's not something to be taken seriously no. at all. But it's, um, yeah, it's enjoyable we film that. Yeah, so it's possibly, of the stuff we're talking about today, the most enjoyable on a sort of simple, easy-to-watch, not-all-that-demanding level, and, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Ooh. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. So where are we heading now? Back into the left? Right, so JFK sees Oliver Stone take on the assassination of John Kennedy by the coward Lee Oswald. 
or was it? Not if you listen to Kevin Costner's Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, who, after being dissatisfied with the Warren Report's take on things, launches his own investigation into the shadowy conspiracy to kill JFK and the alleged reasons for it, and the real guilty parties in this affair, Joe Pesci's David Ferry and Tommy Lee Jones's Clay Shaw, not Gary Oldman's Lee Harvey Oswald at all, who's just a patsy. And, well, so it goes, and I'm not going to dignify Jim Garrison's ramblings with the dignity of a recap, even in order to debunk them. Uh, There's no shortage of resources out there already for that. Uh, There is, however, an instructive quote from Oliver Stone, who at the time knew very little of either the actual facts or the conspiracy research around the JFK assassination, about reading Jim Garrison's memoirs, something along the lines of that it read like a whodunit, and that as a dramatist, that excited him. And you know what? As dispassionately as I can manage, he's right. Uh, For it is a hell of a story, and Oliver Stone knows how to put a film together. Uh, Even for a three-hour-plus film, certainly if you're watching the director's cut, uh, Three hours, 24 minutes? Yes. It's a long film. It is extensive, but even that, it does bomb along at a pace and it doesn't feel stretched. Um, And with a cast like the likes of which he's gathered here, it's tough to go wrong. You've got Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, Sissy Spacek, Donald Sutherland, Kevin Bacon, John Candy, uh, which all makes for an engaging bunch of supporting acts. And Kevin Corsner is, it must be said, excellent in the role as the purest of driven snow, selfless defender of liberty and the American dream, Jim Garrison. Of course, the problems stem from Jim Garrison being a complete fruitcake. Uh, <laughs> now, I consider JFK conspiracy theorists at best swivel-eyed lunatics, and <laughs> <laughs> I never get tired of you using that phrase. And in the in the community of JFK conspiracy theorists, Jim Garrison is considered a swivel-eyed lunatic. So this may give some indication of a general feeling about Jim Garrison. And despite many people warning Stone about the quite blatant inaccuracies, distortions and flat-out confabulations in Garrison's investigation, he seems to have managed to take up residence entirely in Stone's blind spot because it's a story he wants to tell that fits in with his existing worldview. Uh, now, I first watched Ollie Stone's JFK over a decade after its release at what I naively then thought was a high watermark in terms of the general belief in nutjob conspiracy theories. 9-11 mainly, but also anti-vax, chemtrails, all that garbage. And I was angry that people were so credulous and watching Stone, someone who's self-identified as a cinematic historian, blithely regurgitate this already roundly debunked nonsensical theories, many of which are trivial to disprove, was hugely disappointing and infuriating me to then and actually not all that much less so now, although I wasn't quite as angry this time round. Um, for, forewarned is forearmed, I suppose. Age, age has wearied you. <laughs> yes. right. The fight's not in you anymore. Yeah. Look, I get it. I don't take the word of the government on face value either, but there, there comes a point where you just have to accept all the actual documented evidence of Oswald's guilt and the exhaustive studies and experiments that all prove that, contrary to the many plucked-from-the-air statements presented in here, that the injury sustained, the technique, the location, Oswald's mental state are all consistent with the official line, no matter how discomforting it is, that one random nutter with a better-than-average aim and a gun can kill the most powerful man in the world. It's not le- any less discomforting to realise that one random nut with a gun can kill dozens at a school or a church. Yes. It's a chaotic yeah. world. Sometimes you just don't have any control of it. Now, In a country fascinated with guns <laughs> and full of swivel-eyed lunatics <laughs> who love practising with their guns and shouting about the president, <laughs> one of those swivel-eyed lunatics with a gun <laughs> that they've practised a lot with shot the president. In a country where it happens literally more than once a day. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I know to some it's reassuring to think that all things are controlled by a hyper-competent cabal of the self-interest in, in government 
government, although oddly the people that have those beliefs also seem to be the ones who least believe in the government having any competence in any other branch at all. So <laughs> a bit of a missed cognitive dissonance there. But at any rate, Stone's JFK wallows in its own self-deceptions and misunderstandings and is at best misguided and encourages people down the path of being open-minded to the points of their brain falling out. <laughs> <laughs> As such, I certainly cannot condone or recommend it, although, and it pains me to admit it, it is a very well-made film. And if this had been yeah. a work of fiction, well, I'll rephrase that, if this had been about a fictional character, I'd most likely have unreservedly enjoyed it. Oh, and that entirely invented slandering the dead gay orgy scene? Its inclusion is perhaps the most disgusting I've been by any film. Stone, or more likely Garrison, has some serious issues. I've, I, I really like JFK. I really enjoy this film. Again, it's not a film that I had watched um, uh, in particular to because uh, I didn't have th- three hours and seven days um, <laughs> to overhead in which to recap. But I have again, it's, I, I watched it most recently about a year ago, um, and I really, really enjoy it. But then... I am a rationalist who puts my who puts my faith in experts, and I am able to set aside the nonsense that's being peddled here and appreciate it purely as a piece of filmmaking and entertainment, which is all it is, regardless of what Oliver Stone would like you to think. Um, in terms of the filmmaking technique, in terms of performances and the cast that Stone works with, um, this is quite possibly the last um, objectively good film that Oliver Stone made although I have got a massive massive soft spot for U-Turn which I know will probably upset some people Um, and I wasn't really sold on Natural Born Killers personally Um, and I'll just continue to disprove my theory because I know there are a lot of people who really like Heaven and Earth. I think this is the last really good high profile Oliver Stone film put it that way but again it's just really concerning I I remember at the time this came out um, my parents and a group of their friends going to see this at the cinema and then coming out and coming back and having conversations about it around dinner tables and hearing them talk to their friends about it and how interesting the theories were Mm. and even even at that age even when I was 12 <laughs> I had read enough to know that it was at least 90% bull <laughs> and it was disconcerting I think it might have been my first window into how susceptible people are just a suggestion when something is presented so confidently yeah. how the faith that I put in myself to be objective is not a quality that is necessarily shared with the majority of people and in that sense it's a very educational movie <laughs> um, but yes I do I do really like JFK as a piece of entertainment but I certainly don't put any stock in its hysteric, <laughs> historical perspective or the ideas of Jim Garrison Yeah, I probably yeah. would be able to enjoy it if I didn't have to stop it every five minutes and go right why is that a lie because yeah it's like yeah there's a great just open the valve on your neck and let the steam out yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hadn't seen JFK until two days ago. Oh, wow. Partly because I've got this friend, right, who once went <laughs> off on one a while ago and was really, really angry about how bad this film was mm. and it kind of put me off of it. Put you off? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll do that, yeah. yeah. So the vitriol that particular friend had about this film, it, it, you know, it's like, I'll put that down in the bottom of my list of things <laughs> to catch up on then. Weird that it was the same friend that was suggesting I watched it, okay. Um, yeah, I, I didn't go into it expecting it to be full of facts because having seen the great BBC documentary on it I know that JFK shot himself just to drive mm-hmm. the conspiracy theorist nuts mm-hmm. but I must admit that my back was up from the opening because they have that uh, the beginning with the voice of is it Martin Sheen? It sounded like Martin Sheen but I didn't yeah, I yeah, forgot I to go so, back yeah. and check um, and it's like it's setting up is like basically this is fact and uh, do not like how this is beginning but then that passes and it's after that again it's more just like 
this film's quite entertaining. It's clearly nonsense. That's fine. I, I'll actually I don't know much about the facts of the JFK assassination because I don't care. Um, so I've never like looked into the way you have like with the debunking of stuff, Scott. Again, don't care. Um, although I do largely come down the same part of view of like, why do people think that governments who are so useless at almost everything can do mm-hmm. watertight conspiracies? It doesn't make oh, any yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah, and being leagued with the mafia at the same time when <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's this? It's very well acted. It's really well shot. It's entertaining. It's awfully long though. Uh, and it does, it does, you know, it does bob along quite well for the most part. But that final scene in the courtroom, which does take like three or four days to get through, um, yeah, <laughs> it's basically just a screen. I, was like, I honestly didn't know whether that was author insertion, was it what it felt like because I, I didn't really know the background to it. But I'm guessing it's more just there, um, Garrison. There are points where you're watching it and you have to question that that decision. It's like, are you just making this? Are are you just aiming for length for the sake of length? <laughs> yeah. It's like um. Kevin, could we just do another take, but instead of saying back and to the left 12 times in a row, could you try 13? <laughs> yeah. I just really want to see how it plays out. But I'm just adding <laughs> together thanks, all 25 of them. <laughs> yeah, just put yeah. F- a, a five-second gap between each instance, yeah? So, I get I felt like author insertion at the end, like this is like Stone's view in it, but I mean, with Stone it could well be. Nothing in there about Jews controlling Hollywood or anything else, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we we'll talk about people with a, an anti-Jewish bias a little bit more in a minute. I suppose. Yeah. Well, apart from that final scene, I said that just the bit of the film that really dragged because it just it went on and on. It's like yeah, I mean, it very possibly was the entirety of Garrison's um, final summation in that court, which seemed mm. to go on for such a long time, wasn't adding anything. Yeah, it's um, it, it's been expanded on uh, for this. It's certainly much longer than the actual summation um, right. and was Oliver Stone's doing it but in terms of this movie's inaccuracies it's very much the least of its problems yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to completely detach you from anything vaguely real it's like this is a well acted film that's well made and it's enjoyable it's not brilliant but it's enjoyable mm. so yeah. um, that, that's where I am with it it's like, yeah. that was quite, I doubt I'll ever visit it again but it was enjoyable enough I, I won't derail this into a, a debunking podcast, but if you do want to check this up, there's a, just search for JFK 100. There's a really excellently researched and footnoted um, referenced website. Um, that's one thing. If you're watching this film, it does feel like an like a Wikipedia adaptation of the Wikipedia notification saying um, citation required. Mm, citation needed, yeah. 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 Is, it, is this something how better and more believable than Jesse Ventura's take on it, Scott? <laughs> no. As I said on Twitter, I would like to protest in the strongest possible terms that Jesse Ventura is not involved with any of this conspiracy theory stuff, and that's just wrong. <laughs> uh, we never did get to the theme of death camps either. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, like just the, the, one of the very simplest bits to, to debunk that became like a whole, a whole linchpin of Garrison's understanding of all this stuff is right. You know when it, he's saying they changed the route of the parade, mm-hmm. right? Everything that else had that logged is that that being the actual route it was going to take. And where Garrison gets this from is one of the Dallas papers printed a, a very very small map of the route, and it was to such a scale that you couldn't see the the small deviation that it took to go off, the, like basically off Main Street and up the up ramp onto the freeway. And mm-hmm. so when when Garrison saying, "Well, why didn't you just keep going down Main and get onto the freeway?" It's because you couldn't. 
there's curbs <laughs> in the way. If you wanted to get onto mm. the freeway, you had to do that. And like the two other Dallas papers printed larger maps of this route that showed them mm. going down that and, and round the plaza. And so the whole concept of there must be someone in power high up enough to change the president's route became such an over, like overwhelming uh, an article of yeah, like a framing device of how, how powerful this is when it's something that just didn't happen he got it from a, a wrong map and, and it's it, like the, funda- the fundamental physics as well where people that tired old argument that you just can't this bolt action the man liquor carcano is just this bolt action rifle and it's crap and you couldn't have a barn door at anything more than 30 yards with it and you can't mm-hmm. possibly cycle it fast enough to get three shots off in that space of time mm-hmm. which has been roundly disproven yeah. a thousand times by now by people who are, uh, will self-proclaim well I'm not the best shot in the world let's see if I can do it with the exact same yes. rifle and can with yes. time to spare yes. <laughs> It sounds like soldiers learn to yeah. fire guns quickly. Yeah. It's like, can we stop talking about this now? Oh, God. But yeah, still a good movie. Shall we move on to another good movie with conspiracy theory? No, no, we shan't. <laughs> right. To be clear, lunatic conspiracy nut cab driver hunted by MIBs for knowing too much, but which of his theories is it? Is a great setup movie for a movie. A great setup. <laughs> That's it. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember renting Conspiracy Theory back in the day and hating it, as well as finding it incredibly confusing. I now realise I wasn't confused, more likely bored out of my skull by it. I must have not yet nurtured my disdain for Julia Roberts back then, and I have since set it aside, which is good. I feel really sorry for her after revisiting the movie now. Well, as sorry as I can feel for a fated multimillionaire afforded the adoration of the masses upon some bizarre pedestal out with my understanding. (laughs) Julia... (laughs) We need to cover her films. Have you really set it aside, Craig? <laughs> Julia plays Alice Sutton, an employee of the government, or some arm thereof, which, which it is being something I neither care to remember nor are convinced has ever actually made clear <laughs> in the movie. Alice is being stalked by Jerry Fletcher, a cabbie whose perception of reality is distorted ever so slightly by his bizarre desire to imagine conspiracy theories of every act he reads of in the press, no matter how seemingly trivial. It's all connected, man. <laughs> Jerry's histrionics seem of bafflingly little concern to Alice, even at the point at which he strides into her place of work and starts waving around a gun he just stole from a security guard. <laughs> <laughs> that Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, of course, sees men in trench coats everywhere, but at some point, one of them actually turns out to harbour nefarious intent, cudgelling Jerry and bundling him into a van whereupon he is tortured for info by shadowy figures in a scene that would love to think it's from the movie Marathon Man, but sadly is not. (laughs) One narrow Looney Tunes escape scene later, Jerry somehow convinces Alice, the woman he has been stalking and in whose work he has been waving a gun around, to come back to his apartment (laughs) so he can explain conspiracy stuff. Run away, Alice! Of course... Armed figures in black break up the party and Alice is eventually convinced that Jerry is not entirely a raving lunatic. And I really wish I'd put swivel-eyed in there. (laughs) There's a point midway through where the movie suddenly threatens to be interesting in relation to an act that intertwines Jerry's past with that of Alice. But then everyone involved remembers that it's 1997 and somehow we have to have the leads fall in love to some degree so that idea gets prompted. 
Canned. Here's a sentence I never thought I'd find myself recounting. Julia Roberts is criminally underserved by this movie. <laughs> and you heard me right. She remains a passenger to Jerry, both figuratively and literally, for much of the duration, except toward the end, whereupon she is, for mere seconds, required to convey the emotion of being quite upset. <laughs> at which point, she outacts the entire rest of the cast for the entire preceding duration of the movie in three seconds flat. <laughs> to be clear, Julia Roberts is the thing I find least egregious about this movie. So, for Mel, sweet, sweet anti-Semitic Mel, a man we have discussed at some length previously on this podcast and whom we all agreed has probably paid his penance now. I've changed my mind. <laughs> Mel Gibson can act, just not in this movie. Here we find him doing that annoying Three Stooges manic routine that director Donner fostered in him through the Lethal Weapon movies. Yes. Only here, against Roberts, it is thrown into stark relief for the sad, schoolyard-grade gurning that it is. Sort of place. Yes. The only person who thinks Mel Gibson is entertaining doing this shtick is Mel Gibson. And there is one moment in particular that made me cringe in embarrassment at how out of depth he is. There's also a moment early on of fantastic casual racism that now, in hindsight, is awfully hard to ignore. After crushing a cockroach in his sink, Jerry mutters, return to sender, before tossing the dead bug into an empty Chinese takeout carton. No, Jerry, it's there because you're a filthy <laughs> with a sink that hasn't been emptied and dishes washed in weeks. Anywho, this movie starts and ends with a paranoid, obsessive delusionist stalking an entirely innocent woman and wants to skull two hours of your time in between trying to convince you that you ought to empathise with him. This movie watched Blue Thunder and thought helicopters having a whisper mode is an actual thing. <laughs> this movie drowns in stupid assertions, then cut itself shaving with Occam's razor. <laughs> Admittedly, this movie does also have a gibberish spouting dude in a wheelchair biting off Patrick Stewart's nose, which is a thing Patrick Stewart must have known when he signed his contract. <laughs> Still, as the Dream Warriors once sang, who is more a fool? Who is more a fool? The fool or the fool who knew this movie was crap for the last 21 years, told everyone as much in the Slack group, but then, for some reason, argued the case for its inclusion on the podcast anyway. I think we all know the answer to that one. According to IMDb Trivia, Richard Donner first gave writer Brian Helgeland work after seeing him standing outside the studio gates with a sign reading, Will work for food. I really hope he got paid in food. Preferably, a takeout carton full of dead cockroaches. <laughs> Brian, Brian Hel Helgeland's output in 1997 is this, The Postman, in LA Confidential. What? <laughs> I don't understand this world anymore, Sean. <laughs> One of these films is not like the others. <laughs> IMDb, which also lists this film's rating as 6.7 out of 10. So, <laughs> so, so it's wrong. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Can we all agree on this one? Yeah, oh, well, yes. yes, I think so. I... Um, I also rented this around about when it was released in video, back in 1987, 1988. Uh, mm -hmm. Unlike you, Craig, though, I was quite fortunate is that I remembered sod all about it till I went back to watch it. <laughs> so, the only, Drew, the only thing I remembered was I hated it <laughs> and that image of the power station, the three stacks. I, I remembered pretty much nothing about it. So when you mentioned it, and I was like, and Scott mentioned this as a potential one, the conspiracy theory, it's like, the name meant nothing to me at all. And then mm. so I looked at it, it's like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And it's like, the biggest problem with this film uh, is it commits the cardinal sin of cinema. 
It's be careful, mate, because <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to say the biggest fault with this movie, I don't know that I could pick it <laughs> from the multitude. It's boring. <laughs> it's just oh. so boring. It really is. Um, I mean, it doesn't start well, too. It's like, I mean, I agree with every single thing you say, Craig, except um, I just like wasn't angry with it. I was just bored. I just wanted it to end. I was like, oh, I'm committed to watching it and I'll have to. Um, mm. And it's really strange bits to it. Like that ridiculous thing of Mel Gibson escaping from that building in the wheelchair, making noises like sloth from Goonies. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is a Richard Donner version. Maybe he's actually making voice noises like sloth from Goonies. <laughs> and then crying about gravy. <laughs> Between that and there's, it's one of the earlier scenes as well where they're just introducing his uh, his his you know his obvious mental illness, but there's chirpy big band music playing over the top of it, so it's happy mental yes. illness. Oh, like, well, I was Car- Carter Burwell's Carter yeah. Burwell score is from an entirely yes. different film, <laughs> and it's just there's also the whole fact that he had anything to do with um, her story at all. So you can see it coming a mile off, but it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. And yeah, it's sad because it's a great it's a great setup. You can you can take this you could take that basic concept and it'd be a great movie to be made there, a really good movie. Certainly not this one. Yes. <laughs> the thing, the, do you know what I loved about the helicopter? Sorry, Drew. You know what I loved about the helicopters as well, because I I I I, I edited myself for comic effect and I kept that short. But I need to go back. This helicopter whisper mode thing, right? <laughs> helicopters got a whisper mode. Bit of a stretch, right? Mm. I've double checked this in the meantime. I've done my research, <laughs> and the best that they can do by creating the craziest shaped blades you've ever seen on a helicopter in your life has reduced the noise of a helicopter by about three decibels. <laughs> so let's stop, talking about, let's stop talking about whisper mode. But not only is it whisper mode, the helicopter hovers 40 feet above a busy New York street <laughs> and armed men in tactical gear repel out of it and nobody notices. Yes. <laughs> so it's also invisible. So um, It's New York, well, they noticed they just didn't care. Well, what I was going to say, Craig, before you started there, was everything yeah. you've just said. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I'm pick up the, the helicopter thing, that bothered me too. Why doesn't anybody see it? Wasn't he invisible? Yeah. No one's noticing the downdraft. Um, you know, no one's noticing the guys repelling down in front of their eyes. It's just a thing. I mean, I know, like, there is that trope, exactly like Scott said, it was like, New Yorkers don't care, right? Um, mm. And films like Gremlins 2 kind of play on that. It's like, oh, mm. until the... Until, this evidence, they ought to. <laughs> until um, Murray getting attacked by the flying gremlin outside starts bothering them, they're not noticing anything at all. But that's a film kind of being satirical about that. This film is taking it seriously. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so dull. And Gibson is terrible. Oh, he's really awful. That, that his performance is so bad. Exactly. You, you took the words out of mouth. Had I had them ready with that, mm. the whole Three Stooges bit that he's doing, it sort of fits with Riggs in Lethal Weapon. And mm. but in this film, yeah, it's, it's so out of place and it's embarrassing. It's, it's the bits of Riggs that didn't work for <laughs> yeah. two hours yeah. and turned up to eleven in places. It's really, really bad and it doesn't work. And that bit where after he's been waving the gun around and he cro- he, he curls up in Julia Roberts' arms on the floor and goes, oh, I'm going to go to sleep, and then goes, 
makes and I'm like, oh my god, I was like, this is so embarrassing yeah. that you are a grown man in the arms of a grown woman playing pretend, and this was the thing you did in front of everyone. <laughs> and God knows what the other take. I mean, because presumably there wasn't just one take of that. God knows what the other takes looked like if that was the one that everybody agreed was the best. <laughs> but I mean, you could say that about a good many scenes in this. That's really weird, is that this movie has kind of forced me to reevaluate my opinion of Julia Roberts. <laughs> um, there you go. It served a purpose. But this is bad. This is really bad. <sighs> um, yes, yes. What an absolute dung heap. <laughs> well, rather than spending any more time on, on this dung heap, Scott, will we move on to. <laughs> yes, let's, let's get off the dung heap. <laughs> Let us not sit atop the dung heap. Uh, yeah, the, the feature length outing of the X Files, sometimes subtitled Fight the Future, nestles itself between series 5 and 6 of the then phenomenally popular television show come pop culture touchstone. So popular that describing what the X Files is, at least to folks of a certain age like us, seems somewhat redundant, almost as redundant as, like, say, describing what Game of Thrones is to the current audiences. But on the off chance that you, gentle listener, are not as fossilised as your dear hosts I'll back up a little bit uh, The X-Files as a concept sees David Duchovny's cynically wisecracking FBI agent Fox Mulder out to prove the existence of the paranormal in general and the existence of extraterrestrials in particular trawling through the bucket of weird and unexplained cases that constitute the FBI's titular X-Files Initially sent by higher-ups in the hopes of debunking his work, Gillian Anderson's sceptical medical doctor-turned-FBI agent Dana Scully proves to be a staunch ally as they looked at not only a whole bunch of standalone Monster of the Week-type episodes, but the mysterious conspiracy between the shadowy agencies running the world governments and the alien menace that is the centrepiece of this movie. Uh, This syndicate of collaborators have been helping the aliens with their plans to take over the world via a virus in an effort to buy time while secretly attempting to develop a vaccine of their own. However, the shape of their alliance shifts after a kid in Texas falls into a cave and is infected with a prehistoric form of this virus that's not simply killing humans but using them to gestate an alien inside them so not an invasion then but a spontaneous repopulation the cover up for this seemingly coincidentally sees Mulder and Scully as part of a team investigating a bomb threat and unexpectedly finding the bomb albeit in a building neighbouring the one that was actually under threat Uh, with the FBI unable to defuse the bomb during the subsequent operational post-mortem their spider sense into procedural irregularities sees them tugging on some threads that lead back to the aforementioned outbreak and could give them the evidence that they need to finally prove this whole alien shebang. But, of course, the dastardly syndicate aren't about to let that happen, those dastards. And so it goes with roles for many of the series' regular and beloved supporting acts like Mitch Pleggy's assistant director, Walter Skinner, William B. Davis's shady cigarette-smoking man, Dean Hagland, Bruce Harwood and Tom Brady as Langley, Byers and Froege, Mulder's even more paranoid buddies, the lone gunman. So... Plenty to go on for fans of the series and uh, B. Davis aside, a bunch of brief and pointless cameos of entirely unexplained characters for anyone coming to this cold. Which, in a nutshell, uh, is the rather obvious, well, let's call it a problem, with the X-Files movie. And if you were to judge this as a movie, divorced from the five series and, what, hundred hours of familiarity with the characters in the conspiracy arc, it's pretty much an inexplicable mess of dense story <laughs> arc and no character setup. And so far removed from it, I suppose it is possible that someone may stumble upon this movie in isolation from the series or think that it's a good way to get a flavour of the series before committing to watching it. They are, I suspect, in for a very bad time. I suspect even I might have had a bad time if I hadn't watched the smattering of episodes a few years back to kind of re myself with everything. 
But that is a problem that very much didn't exist at the time of release, and it would be perverse to expect what is essentially an extravagant two-part episode to pretend that all that hundred hours of baggage, good and bad, didn't exist. If you already bought into the X-Files horse and pony show, there's a lot to like in this outing. All the character interactions you love, a sort of conclusion, or at least a very significant evolution to a mystery that's been dangled in front of you for five years. And I still like this a lot, uh, in the main, because I still like the X-Files a lot, and this is part of it. It is not, however, the best part of it, and and it's not too controversial a position to take that this was perhaps the series' last hurrah before sliding somewhat in quality, or perhaps just position in the general zeitgeist over the next four seasons. Between ultimately nine seasons of The X-Files and three of spin-off series Millennium and half a series of The Lone Gunman, uh, The X-Files just rather exhausted most folks' patience, mine included, but when occasionally dipping into the later episodes or even the recent reboot, it's still surprisingly enjoyable in small doses, years apart. Uh, so that's all a bit of ramble, but there's not a lot of sense in separating this from the X-Files as a gestalt. If you're new to it, well, this really isn't the place to start. That would be the first few episodes, and then practically any random selection from the first five seasons. But if you are watching this through in solid order, it is a solid instalment. But yes, not one that's really best taken in isolation. Yeah, I've never seen the X-Files movie. It's, I saw this when it was new. I thought it was fine then. I saw it this morning. I thought it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I mean, I remember enough of the general beats of the X Files and enough, still enough of the characters to, yeah. to to be able to grok it quickly enough. And like, the thing is, it and obviously it's a bit glossier, but it still kind of looks and feels like an extended episode. Yeah, very much is. Isn't it feels it? like an extended episode. Why is it not just an extended episode? Why is there a film at all? I don't understand its existence, the purpose of its existence. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so yeah, if you've been watching X-Files, and particularly the kind of the overarching story, not the individual episodes that go off to do other stuff, other just general weird things, Yeah. then I can see you get quite a lot out of it. But yeah, it's not special. It's entertaining enough, I guess. But what I was struck by this time, though, is... And I, maybe you can fill me in here, Scott, because it's so long since I've seen X-Files and I never watched that much of it. I think mm. maybe the first... I probably watched the bulk, if not all, of the first three seasons. Yeah. They largely drifted away from it after that. Is Mulder... Was Mulder always so completely useless? Yes. Yes. <laughs> because I'm watching this and I'm thinking, like, he's supposed to be this FBI agent and he's, like, he's this great threat to people, but he doesn't, like, do anything ever. He doesn't investigate where Dane is, somebody tells him. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't... And he constantly gets told he's getting close. Yeah. He doesn't <laughs> get into the, the big spaceship in Antarctica you know, by bribing someone or finding a clever one. He is walking across an entire ice field and happens to step on the right bit that lets him fall into (laughs) it. Literally, he falls into it. (laughs) And then also, he gets to Antarctica. This is probably more an issue with the writing rather than the character, though. But (laughs) he gets to Antarctica somehow because, I mean, FBI agents are loaded and it's really cheap to get there, I'm sure. And also, he didn't have to turn up at work, apparently. You know, um, (laughs) he gets to Antarctica somehow. He gets out of Antarctica somehow, but also he's a moron because he had didn't have enough fuel to get there and back. And despite knowing that his partner, who's, whose life he's trying to save, has been taken to Antarctica and is probably not being um, expected to survive outside there, doesn't even think to bring a change of clothes. <laughs> These were the things that bothered me watching this. Like, um, why is this hero such a moron? <laughs> 
Why is he not called Muppet? <laughs> Instead of Mulder, you know? It's like, Fox Muppet. He's just, he just spent most of the series stumbling around yeah. into stuff and being told he was getting close to the truth and sort of like, oh, yeah, I was only doing my weekly shot. Yeah, I don't think you ever, you ever see him anything do... anything out of the ordinary. I don't think you ever see him do any investigative work in any episode. No, he doesn't do seen. any actual investigation. Yeah, so no, like, stuff just lands on his doorstep. Yeah. Why is this character like considered like, appealing or something? Because he doesn't do anything. He's not an investigator. No, but he's funny. <laughs> stuff, stuff is brought to him, and he points out how weird it is. Yeah. Oh, and he pisses on an Independence Day poster. Ooh, edgy. <laughs> Man alive! For all of that, it's still fine, apart from the fact that and they're soaking wet in the middle of like minus twenty degrees centigrade Antarctica, and they don't. My hair doesn't. Look, I can't turn that bit of my brain off. Okay, I'm sorry. But yeah, it's fine. If you've not seen the X-Files, you're going to get absolutely nothing from it. Yeah, uh, don't bother. Yeah, definitely not want to take an isolation. Um, as I think it's worth going back to see some of the X-Files in general, if you've not seen it. Um, it's, a, it's a solid bit of television, certainly at least the, the earlier seasons of it. But uh, yeah, th- this film would be low down on your priority list of uh, best X-Files episodes. X-Files is weird because despite being enamoured of it at the time and having sort of ingested pretty much all of it, I don't... I, recall very little of it now and it seemed so you know zeitgeist forming at yeah. the time it was such mm-hmm. a big deal and there was so much cultural impact from it and it, it influenced well not influenced but it had uh, you know it was referenced in so much other popular culture I look back at it now and I've, for some reason I've never had the compulsion to watch any of the spin-off stuff I don't remember that much besides a few select episodes of the, the TV series it's really weird yeah, and for it's me, like I've had my memory wiped. <laughs> uh, the stuff that sticks out, I mean, I, again, I know like the basic overarching story, the black oil stuff, cigarette smoking man, mm. agent Crycheck, aged alien bounty hunters is a phrase I know. I can't actually <laughs> yeah. associate it with any vision. Uh, the stuff I remember more from the X Files is things like Eugene Toombs and the, the, yeah, Toombs. the more just kind of kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not turned up to a hundred, yeah, you know. Yeah. When it was less about the overarching uh, you know, narrative. Yeah. Which is the larger the plot date. Yeah, the incidental weird stuff that was just the focus of like three of every four episodes basically. Yeah, it's like an anthology of kind of strange stuff that happened. Yeah. I think that's where its strength lied. I think that's the weakest part of the X Files was the the sort of the larger na- the broader narrative. Because it never really seemed to go anywhere, did it? In fact, did this film not promise as was one of the taglines of this film something not to do with like, oh finally some answers or or something to that effect. It wasn't Which... so much as the answers as a different set of questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh cool. <laughs> and I don't think they ever actually answered them. I remember going back and watching the, the end of the series nine, that would be the last season, which proclaimed all well, we're wrapping everything up now, and it's like no, didn't didn't really wrap anything up there. I'm not satisfied by any of this, and uh, they, they've kind of went back to a few in some of the reboots to try and uh, explain why there's not been an alien invasion, and it's all a bit hand wavy. Uh, see, the first I know of a reboot is when ten minutes ago you first mentioned the reboot. Yeah, there was a series a couple of years back, and another one start of this year, um, both of which are. Okay, um, actually, have I seen any of the reboot? So and the one from two years back was perfectly okay. I enjoyed it well enough. I don't think I've actually seen the one from this year. Um, but yeah, um, it, it felt a bit like, a, not quite fan fiction-y, but it's, um, it, it's, yeah. a, it, it's a nice little bit of nostalgia, but it's not. I wasn't a huge fan of it as a, a series. Always, 
are those the ones that still had Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny in them though? Yes. See, I never realised oh. those were reboots. I knew they'd done new episodes. I just thought they were a continuation. I didn't realise they were reboots. Sorry, did I say reboot? Um, no, yeah. just the, well, restart. Um, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, I don't even think I knew about that yeah. though. That's that's weird. It feels like other stuff tried to move into the space in the meantime. Like Fringe was okay for a couple of series and it felt like what, you know, the yeah. kind of, the more recent answer to Exiles, but then that went tits up and off the rails. Yeah, I liked, um, I liked Fringe well enough all the way throughout it. But yeah, it got, it got very yeah. wacky towards the end. Yeah. Uh, there's various other things, of course, like lost. But I think I think all, all the kind of... Less said about that, the better. Yeah. Because uh, one, one of the main writers of The X-Files was Vince Gilligan. Of course, we went on to do Breaking mm. Bad and uh, yeah. found somewhat more success with that uh, line of thinking. Mm. Yeah. Arguably more consistent. Yes. Oh, well, there you go. Does that wrap up our conspiracy? Bit of feedback on the old X Files from Tengushi on Twitter at Tengushi. Uh, he's just rewatched all of the X Files. It holds up very well indeed. Terrific show episode by episode and an excellent meta plot. It ends the syndicate part of well, this film ends the syndicate part of the plot. The plot then deepens and expands into further layer of conspiracy, all of which is married and explained in the series nine episode of The Truth. Watch the episode. I watched that a while back. I did not get the answers I was looking for, but I think by that point I couldn't even remember what the questions were. It all got a bit messy. <laughs> no. Is what I'm saying. Yes, uh, so thanks very much for your attention. Uh, we'll be back soon enough with another podcast. Um, but until such time, if you want to get in touch with us on these or any other matters, then please do uh, email podcast at Fuds on Film or on the Twitters at Fuds on Film. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I will say a goodbye, and I'm sure that Drew and Craig will do too. Fairly well. It looks like R2D2's butt plug. What? <laughs> Cybertruck. <laughs> Oh, right. right. Yeah, I understand that now, yeah. <laughs>